Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. On today's show, we have Alex and Keith Horst of A&K Gems. You may have come across Alex's amazing gemstone and jewelry work, and today we'll also be talking to his dad, Keith, about his beautiful cabs. So stay tuned and hear their story. Hey, Alex and Keith, I'm so glad you're here with me today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us here. I'm excited to learn about how you got into rock hounding and lapidary and making jewelry too. Keith, why don't you start us out? All right. Well, it's not a problem for me to talk a long time because uh, that's what I've done for the last 20 years as an instructor of lapidary arts here in Prescott. I got started in 1975 in Lakewood, Colorado. I was a musician and I had a music store. How does that tie into lapidary? Well, my brother-in-law went into business with me into my music store and he was a jeweler. And he talked me into started starting to sell jewelry making supplies in my shop, which I did. We did. And within a few months after putting in jewelry supplies, our business had just blossomed completely into all jewelry supply business instead of the music store. So I got rid of the music store part of it Wow! and became a uh, jewelry supply store. You notice I haven't said lapidary and all of that. We were selling jewelry making supplies, sheet and wire silver and pliers and saw frames and all the rest of that stuff. And eventually, a couple months later, we started getting into uh, the lapidary end of it, too, selling equipment. We specialized in opals and turquoise and that type of thing, more in the high-end type of lapidary stuff. I had never really done much lapidary. I was always interested in rocks. And so when uh, I was introduced into the jewelry-making part of it, it was totally foreign to me. And my brother-in-law guided me through the learning process and learning how to, you know, weigh metals and doing all that stuff. I took a GIA course on colored stones, and I joined a couple of the clubs up in Denver, Colorado, and did some rock hounding and that kind of thing. I became really interested in the lapidary part of it. I started cutting a lot of stones. My brother-in-law and I would cut a lot of turquoise for our stone in our store back then, so that was the very first experience I had with lapidaries, cutting turquoise and soft stuff. And after cutting turquoise for a couple of years, boy, I thought I really knew a lot about lapidary because turquoise was fairly easy to, to do. And back in the 70s, when this was happening, the turquoise was very abundant and there was a lot of really good, high quality material to choose from. So I was kind of spoiled, I guess, in a way. So to say I was a, never an amateur would be just boasting from that fact. But I, I, I started out selling stones from the get-go, making cabbing stones and selling them in my store. So I never was just an amateur at that. And after a while, I developed a, a, a a passion for cutting other things other than turquoise. And I started cutting the agates and the jaspers and all the rest of that stuff. Then we got into faceting. And that's definitely something Alex picked up from you. Alex, my son, was born in the store in 1975, his, his birthday. And he grew up in the store, uh, literally grew up in a store. He used to crawl around on his hands and knees before he could walk and pick up uh, junk laying on the floor. <laughs> he picked up lucky, well, yeah, lucky guy, little kid. You know, he'd come in and uh, we had red shag carpeting in his store, if you can believe it. I and would love we to were, visit. Well, we were selling colored stones, and so we get these colored stone guys come in with these little packets of melee sapphires and rubies and stuff, and you open those up and they pop all over the place, and you lose some, and they go out in the shag carpeting while they're totally lost in shag carpeting. And Alex, as a little kid, would come in on his hands and knees and separate the shag carpeting and find little rubies and sapphires and stuff. So it was like a treasure hunt in our shop there for a kid. Yeah, definitely. 
And he got a background in, in all of this stuff really young. So by the time he was four or five years old, he knew all the lingo. He knew all the different types of stones and all the rest of that. It was pretty amazing. Um, then he started cutting stones too. We, we set him up with lapidary. So the, the Alex had a lot of experience in a very early age in life uh, with with lapidary. And then, of course, we got into the jewelry making part of it too because we had all the supplies and everything. So that's how I got my start in this whole thing. And I always had a passion for going out rock hounting anyway. So I always thought it was way cool. You know, my dad used to take me uh, rock hounting out in the foothills of, of uh, eastern Colorado and I'd pick up petrified wood as a little little kid and was always amazed that a piece of wood could turn into a rock or a mineral that looked exactly like the piece of wood that it was originally, except now it's a rock. And I was just amazed and blown away at that. So when I had my shop and I learned lapidary, I was really happy about that. And I could turn those that, that rock into some beautiful cabs and that type of thing. Um, we did, uh, eventually we sold our shop in Lakewood, Colorado, and we moved down here to Arizona. My father-in-law was a, a land developer and we owned a, a cattle ranches and other property here in Northern Arizona. And, uh, our families all lived on a on a working Morgan Horse show ranch out in Kirkland, Arizona, and this is where Alex grew up primarily. Um, wow! And of course, being that we were all the family was all involved in lapidary and jewelry making, when we built the ranch, we incorporated a big building for nothing more than having our lapidary and jewelry making uh, shop right there at the ranch, so we could easily work on stones or do jewelry or whatever we're doing. Of course, we had tons of equipment that we took out of the shop when we left Denver. And Alex used all that, uh, all his uh, young life, uh, cutting stones. And of course, we're, we're out in a ranch now. We're amongst the rocks themselves, which is a beautiful situation. And we're near Baghdad, Arizona, which produces some of the best copper minerals in the world. And we cut a lot of those things. And I started doing shows at that point uh, because I had such a buildup of, of cabochons. I started doing shows. I did the Quartzite Show in 1992, I think. And uh, all this time, by the way, we were attending the Tucson Show every year. My family would always go to Tucson ever since we started our store in 75. So I've been attending the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show since 1975. I'm pretty proud of that fact. I've been going to every Tucson show for 45 years. That's quite a few Tucson shows. I bet you've seen um, some changes there. Yeah, I have seen a lot of changes. And back when they let children go through the Tucson show, we 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 would take I'd take Alex along with me too. And it was amazing. He could he could walk through those shows and he knew more about the rocks and the gems and the minerals and all that stuff than most little kids would ever think about knowing and i bet um, it was quite a shock to some of the dealers when he started talking to them that <laughs> the volume of knowledge he had in him that he could explain all this stuff as a little kid well alex got the passion to cut stones like i did and do jewelry and early on i think i burned him out uh, you know, making him cut a lot of calves i didn't make him cut calves he liked to do it but after a while he got kind of bored at cutting calves and he wanted to start carving and he started uh, carving, uh, unlike just carving, you know, figurines and alligators or whatever other people were carving rocks out of. He always admired the German style of carving, the Eider Oberstein guys, the Bern Moonsteiners and those type of people. And he was only 12 at the time he started picking up all these carving techniques. And he wanted to try to do that style of carving as opposed to just standard gemstone carving. What does that style look like? to describe for people who aren't familiar with it. What, the Moonsteiner cuts I'm telling you about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Bern Moonsteiner is probably 
the world's best lapidary at Eider Oberstein, he's developed a technique of taking faceted type of stones like amethysts and citrines and the quartz and stuff and putting reverse cuts on the back, the tubes and the holes and all the cool looking stuff on the on the pavilions of the stones, which reflect through the through the through the face of the stone, and they look really cool. They're just one of a kind. A lot of geometric. A lot shapes. of geometric yeah. shapes. Yeah, a lot of really geometric type shapes. Tom Finnerman was also a big inspiration. And another guy out of Boulder, yeah. Colorado, Tom Finneran, who was working for Lou Wackler at the time in Boulder, Colorado. And there's a couple of names I just threw out that are world class lapidaries there. Uh, Alex is a young kid. Nobody would really give him any tips or hints on how to carve like that. And Tom, Tom Finneran met Alex at one of the shows. I think it was a Tucson show. And, and it was the DI. Oh, the, it was, oh, Denver. It was, no, it was the Desert Inn before they tore oh, it. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh. oh, it was the old historic Desert Inn yeah. in, in Tucson. Yeah, how can I forget that? And uh, Tom gave Alex a lot of good tips on how to start carving and what type of machinery and equipment to use and the process of doing it. And so, Alex took to it like you wouldn't believe. He came back to the ranch and just started making these really exceptional carvings as a 12-year-old kid that would just blow the socks off anybody that saw them. And I started selling them at shows, and he got really popular with them. And so eventually, Lapidary Journal did do an article on Alex, um, as you know, um, back in the late 90s. And they, of course, since I was the cabochon cutter. They incorporated some of my cabs in it too. So that was a that was a good little boost for Alex as a young well, a young man at the time. And it went from there. He 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 just started doing a lot of jewelry work after that. And well, he's always doing jewelry work, but he developed his own style with the jewelry and started incorporating some of that stuff into his jewelry work. Then developed his own style for jewelry. And the old man here just kept doing. Uh, cabochon work and doing lots and lots of cabs and selling them at shows and developing a clientele base. And you and Alex both teach at our community college. Can you tell us how that got started? In 2000, I was approached by the local community college here. I used to go into the college and sell stones to the students in the jewelry program. Um, And uh, the instructor at the jewelry class in the Yavapai College here in town asked me if I ever wanted to teach a lapidary class. And I said, well, I haven't really considered it. He said, well, it'd be great if you could maybe come in and do an experimental lapidary class, which I did one summer. I put a, I put a lapidary class together, didn't thinking it was not thinking it was really going to go over that well for some reason. I said, well, what interest could they have in it? And it went from there. It just went crazy. I, I had uh, five students originally and it blossomed to 15 the next semester. They offered me a job after that first semester and it blossomed to 15 students in one class. They just said, can I develop an advanced class, which I did. So I had two classes going. I had a beginning class and an advanced class teaching lapidary arts. And it blossomed from there. So I was pretty proud of the fact that I developed the lapidary arts class at Yavapai College here in town. There wasn't there there still isn't a whole lot of college level lapidary classes out there. So I developed the curriculum myself and uh, Anyway, it went from there, and here I am sitting here today. I retired this year as an instructor of lapidary nice. arts. Alex has since taken up also instructing. He's teaching a lapid, uh, jewelry at lapidary jewelry at Yavapai College also. So it's kind of a real family business now with teaching. At least we, we were both involved in the teaching part of it. 
and we're both very active in making. He's at, Alex is very active in jewelry making, as you know, and I'm very active in, in doing cabochon work. And we have a beautiful studio here. It's a guest house next besides our shop. We converted the whole house to jewelry making and lapidary. So it's uh, we're all set up. We have been. We're quite content here, and I think we do a pretty good job. <laughs> well, you do beautiful work, and I love hearing about how it got started. I mean, this is such a perfect area for people who want to rock hound and i can see why lapidary classes would be popular here too well, well it is katie I, i've I actually i just retired like i said this semester was my last semester i counted I, I i sat down and counted up how many students i've had through my classes in 20 years i graduated over 810 students Whoa. in 20 years not bad for a little town of prescott arizona that's that amazing many lapidary students and we founded a club here in town also in night in 2000 i'm a one of the original founding members of the prescott gym and mineral club here in town and we've developed very a cool. very successful club we have over 300 members now and have a very successful show every august here in town i don't think we're going to have it this year because of the corona outbreak but uh, anyway it's been a great show we had over six thousand in attendance last year at that show and i'm proud to say i was a uh, uh, one of the very first dealers at that show and have been ever since. So, yeah, that's a really wonderful legacy, I think, for the town and all around here. 6,000 people is a lot. I mean, this yeah, is for attendance of a show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Alex, we heard about you as a kid growing up in the shop, and I'd love to know kind of how it's transformed as you've grown yourself. You know, as a ranch kid, you know, it was kind of high desert. So you could. You work during the day and in the evening, in the morning, you found yourself, you know, um, doing ranch work. And then and then during the day when it got hot, I just started tinkering around with the um, lapidary equipment and the jewelry equipment. My uncle had a little shop set up to do jewelry and and the jewelry really wasn't on my radar so much as it was the lapidary. I always enjoyed grinding rocks and, you know, and it had it kind of had as a 12 year old kind of had fun equipment, made a lot of noise. Um, and you could take a rock and you can grind on it. How cool was that? So, Very cool. um, you know, started, started, uh, just cutting the agates and jaspers that we would find around, um, the ranch, you know, living down close to Baghdad, that's, you know, Baghdad, Arizona, Burrow Creek. Those are all really big, um, collecting areas for rock hounds. So that was, you know, an hour drive from, from there. And dad always took it, took me out rock hounding, you know, we'd go find things in the winter time when the snakes weren't out and bring it back and start cutting it. And so that's how I started getting into all that and um, doing lapidary cabochons for dad. And just, just, it was something to do. It was fun to do and make a little bit of money on it when dad would sell them at shows. That was always fun. And then, you know, as dad was saying earlier that I kind of got burnt out on just cabochon cutting. And when we go to the Tucson show, you know, I remember the Tucson show for, you know, everything that was down there, there's so much to see. And, you know, the things that really struck me the most were the contemporary sort of cutting, you know, the, the Moonsteiner, the um, Tom Finnerman, um, Lou Wackler, Steve Walters, Steve Walters, all these guys were, you know, just starting to, um, they, they were just starting to come into play when I was about, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, the contemporary gemstone carvings were just starting to come around. And, you know, Tom Finnerman's stuff really resonated with me quite a bit. I just really liked how he was taking, um, at the time, Brazilian agate geodes, when you could get Druzy geodes, and you could get them in plentiful colors and sizes and just beautiful patterns. Um, back in the day, were inexpensive, and really, as a lapidary stone, they were more or less bookends, and you know, they were they were kind of uh, uh, 
paperweights and just not really thought of as a good lapidary material, but the Druzy, the Druzy quartz inside of them was gorgeous. And Tom really started cutting really the agates around those. And I just thought that was just the coolest thing ever. And I had to try that, you know, and so that's how it kind of started with me for gemstone carvings was like, I knew where Tom was getting these, you know, because dad and I had been around the shows and it's like, oh yeah, go down and see sure. the guy down the road, pick up some good Druzy quartz and take it home. And then it's like, well, you need a big saw. And when I was 16, we hunted down a saw that was just up the road. And I bought my first big piece of lapidary equipment when I was 16, you know, and re- rebuilt a big, a big uh, old Fram Tom saw that I just dearly love and still on on the back porch and still runs today. And I- No way. Have, yeah, I've still rebuilt it multiple times and still runs. So we just, dad just used it last week. It's still around, built in 1959. You know, and that's, that, that kind of got me the passion for the tools there by just, you know, and a lot of times with the uh, gemstone carvings was there wasn't tools on the market that you could buy to make the affected um, stone that you wanted at the end. So it was like, I had to, I had to ask Tom or, Lou, it's like, man, how did you get those angles in there? What what was that? You know, and the cool thing about Tom was is that he would tell you just enough to get you going down that direction, but not enough to tell you how to do it. And I, I sure. thought that was looking back on it, I was I was it's like, oh man, I wanted him to tell me exactly how he did it. But he it told must me have the been tools. Frustrating. To, it was, it was. But I think that was the best part of it because if you're really passionate about something, if somebody sets you on a course like that with, you know, here's what you need to do it, go home and figure it out. If you're, if you're really passionate about it, you won't give up. You will figure out how to do it and you figure out your own way. You know, it's like, here's the, here's the parts now go build it, you know, and that's what he did. And it's like, yeah, you got to get this crystallite lap and then you got to put it on this rubber, you know, and, you know, grind it off here and then, you know, figure it out from there. And I did. And I would come back and he was like, that was always fun because you could show him what you did. And he's like, oh, I see you figured it out. It's like, yeah. Nice. So, yeah, that was that that really got me into it. And so, yeah, just doing those contemporary cuts for a long time. Um, yeah, uh, then, it seems uh, like there's it seems like there's a, um, a sort of a secrecy, you know, around rock hounding and how to how to make it you know to me yeah as a, that's you know that's kind of a, as funny. an outsider looking in but it yes, sounds to, it sounds like you're talking about a lot of collaboration and a lot of sharing of information and kind of leading you down the path like you said right. until you yeah and there out. was and that was and that was something that i would ask certain people and you would get a really vague answer and some people would give you a little bit more of an answer but i really never got the exact answer i wanted because i i think it's just everybody's equipment's different everybody's tooling's different and there wasn't there wasn't tools to make what was out there you know so you pretty much had to make your own tools or figure out what you had to make them work do what you wanted it to do so it was just a mindset that you had to be in it's like okay well this this particular grinder does this but if i hook it up to this machine and i get the water going on in this direction and i hold the stone like this ah i get what i want out of it so yeah there was yeah. a lot of that um but there also is that shrouded sort of, yeah, I wanted a matte surface on something forever. And it's like, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And it's like, ah, silicon carbide and the sandblaster, that got it, you know? And it was like, I was putting everything through the sandblaster, trying to get sandblasted effects, you know? And there was, you know, and then find the right media. And it's like that passion helped me hone the 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 look that I wanted because I tried everything else until I got it, you know? And so, yeah, it's just... 
the secrecy, the secrets behind all of it are, you know, I'm, I'm all about telling everybody anything anymore. You know, there's no, there's no need to hold on to any of that, my opinion, but you know, other people have different thoughts on that, but I, it's always, you know, where's the best rock counting sites? Always just right over that hill, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's always, if you, right. if you want it, you'll find it. Well, it's kind of, to me, it sounds like the perfect, um, the perfect intersection of finding buried treasure. You discover something even on the inside of the stone, maybe you create this amazing skill mm-hmm. and you have to persevere. I mean, you guys are kind of rock pirates. <laughs> yeah, to a certain degree. And I think, I think too, um, being in this business, growing up in this business, seeing the evolution of rock hounding and and materials slowly disappearing, where the stuff you took for granted, you know, like Druzy quartz, where it was like, oh, as a kid, it's like, oh, I could just go get great, great Druzy and cut it up and do wonderful things with it. Now it's really hard to get the quality that I used to get. So you start to look at other materials to do what you are passionate about and it's like you may not be able to get that same material again so it's like wow you know you start looking at the stuff that everybody's overlooked for years you know and it's like i did one year i did slate and it's when home depot first opened here in town and i thought that was the coolest store ever at the time and i'm walking through it and it's like oh they got all this tile and then there was slate tile and Somebody dropped a piece of the slate on the floor and it broke into all these pieces on the floor. And I stood in front of that pile and stared at it for like 15 minutes. And then just like, I'm going to take that slate and I'm going to leave that broken surface on it. And I'm going to cut these geometric shapes out of it. And it's like the tile was five bucks, you know, and it was like, and then I started looking through it and it's like, I want to break everything now just to see how (laughs) it breaks, you know, and it's like, so that sort of mentality is where you start looking at materials from a different angle, I think really helped my business a lot as far as uh, the gemstone carvings were, because it, there was a material that you, if you had the money and the wherewithal to go find it and get it at the Tucson show, you could definitely have it. But it's like putting a new twist on something that you see every day, as I always enjoyed, was like, figure out the next wave, the new thing. It was always fun for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably part of what sparks all of our passions about jewelry making is that there's always something else to try. Absolutely. You yeah. know, you've never done it all or tried it yeah. all. Yeah, and and I will never consider myself a master at anything cuz it's you're never a master. I think you're a master after you've passed away. That's when you become a master. Up until then you're still learning. That's I'm speechless. That's an excellent point. While you guys were talking about your um kind of entrance into this world of lapidary and jewelry making, I was thinking about Malcolm Gladwell has a 10,000 hours theory that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, then you're going to be an expert. That's an interesting difference between expert and master. I think, I think we passed a 10,000 hour. A long yeah, time we, ago, right? <laughs> we passed a 10,000 hours many years right. ago. Yeah. 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 It sounds yeah. like it. So it's yeah. like refining, constantly refining. Yeah. No. Um, and, and I've, and I've, th- I think a lot about that sort of thing and it's like, you never, And I try to be extremely humble about it. And it's like, you're always going to learn something from somebody, you know, and with teaching, I think that's a fun thing about teaching is, is because you have students that come in with no preconceived notion of what the outcome can be or what tools that need to, that they need to use to produce that outcome. And they will come up with the most creative, cool designs and ways of doing it. It's like, I would have never thought of doing something like that. And it's like, 
So, you know, like I said before, it's like if you if you start to consider yourself a master at any one thing, it's like you've stopped learning because everybody's got something to, you know, give and you can learn from for sure. That's that's I think that's the best part about art is, is that it's always evolving. Yeah, I think that's true about teaching, too. I think we get as much out of being as instructors of jewelry making as what students give to us, you know, with all the you're right, just interesting ideas and kind of different takes and also just a renewed enthusiasm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I I get off on that just as much as anything else with my students, because they'll get excited about sawing something or drilling a hole in something. And it's like, ah, it's fun to feed off of that energy. It's because, oh, if I got to saw something or drill something, it's just monotony. You know, it's like, all right, I'll go back and do that. But if they're excited about cutting something, you know, that's really neat to see somebody spark up about something that you do on a daily basis for sure. Yeah, definitely. It never gets old that way. No. I love the idea of finding inspiration in the aisles of Home Depot or in the hills of Arizona. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't seem possible, but it's so true. Yeah. Just got to be open to it. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, Could you give us some tips for people who want to make, who maybe haven't, started um cabbing and they want to get started with lapidary what they should look for in a stone i'm sure we could spend another three days talking about that but yeah, is, are there some the tips that you could give us <laughs> well, okay, uh, i don't know if i can give you the short version of that or not you know um, that's okay you know and when you were saying something about opening up a rock or the beauty of it or whatever you know i always use that line from forrest gump it was one of my favorite lines i used about using a rock saw as i say Rocks are like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, you know, which is the truth. Yeah. And that's that's some of the exciting things about beginners when they go out rock hunting or pick up rocks is to see what might be inside of them. You know, that's, uh, that, that's kind of a driving passion for a lot of beginning lapidaries to cut a rock open to see what it's going to be or do. Um, you know, as far as, and, and you're absolutely right, as far as learning from the students, uh, Katie, over the years, I've, I've picked up so many great ideas from my students, and I come back here and I'm saying, no, why didn't I think of that? You know, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad they did for me, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll start incorporating those styles into my cutting. It's, it's really been helpful for me. When I first started teaching, I really didn't think I had that much to offer the students. I mean, I knew how to cab and everything, but I started teaching, and all of a sudden, all this stuff started just pouring out of me pretty easily, all this stuff I must have been holding back all those years. and that's. And so that's why I talk so much when I when I do teach because I all this stuff just seems to come out, you know, from the stuff I've learned past sure. past experiences and whatever. So with that in mind, I even forgot what your leading question was. <laughs> how, so, do you yeah, <laughs> how, do you, how do you pick a rock? How do you pick a rock? Off on a tangent. How do you pick a rock? Well, it's 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 based upon beauty, you know. I think yeah, we all pick up rocks. I mean, as as children, I would hope if you're living someplace where there are rocks, you're out walking around. And even well, the kids these days are tied to their telephones or their cell phones, but even so, they're looking at the ground and picked up a beautiful rock before. I know you have, Katie. Everybody has, you know, as a little oh, kid. Yeah. And that's where the passion starts: is picking up these rocks and, and finding them and, and learning. You know, then if you want to keep on going about with that, you you know, you want to see what it does. In my case, I was always impressed with tumbled stones when I was a little kid. Me going too. On trips, yeah, going on trips with my parents and you know going across Route 66 and going to one of the tourist shops and they had these bins of these beautiful polished tumbled stones. Not knowing how to do those, I went back to my house in Denver 
my mom was a beauty operator, so she had fin- clear fingernail polish. So I would oh, there use you go. clear. I would polish all these rocks with clear fingernail polish, thinking that's how you got a polish on the rocks. I didn't know anything about lapidary. <laughs> I love it. Once I learned how to tumble stones, I said, "Boy, that makes a lot better co- looking stone than the <laughs> fingernail polish on the thing." You know, but people get interested in rocks like that. You know, that when they're when they're small or even when they're adults, especially living here in Arizona. My gosh, what a wonderland we live in here with all the rocks that are out there. And, uh, you know, I have so many people approach me wanting to identify rocks and they pick up rocks and what is it? You know, they want to know what is it? Uh, and mm. that's, that's something too, that everybody does. I think when they're out walking around on a picnic or target shooting or whatever reason you might be out walking around and, in the, the nature, you pick up a rock and want to know what it is and uh, maybe where it came from. And- I think, too, with that, I, one thing that I, I'm passionate about, and especially in Arizona here and just, just being conscious of this sort of thing, and, and, and you see it go both ways anymore, is, is that one thing that Dad taught me when we were out rock hounding was is that you you pick up and you take what you can use and you leave the rest, you know, and that's, and that's the biggest pet peeve I see with any sort of uh, rock hounding. You know, it's like, you know, take two or three pieces, take it home, see if it works, you know, grind it, shape it, see if the cracks are any good in it. You know, if it falls apart, that sort of thing before you take a bucket of something away from a collecting site. Cause you know, these, these sites are precious. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, the, the laws change, the material changes uh, and it goes away after a while. And I think it's more important to me now more than ever is, is that, you know, when you're rock hounding or choosing a rock or something, when you're out looking, is just take what you need, take a few pieces, see if it's something you can use, you know, it's how many collections have dad and I have seen where we go over to somebody's house that has passed and they want to know what their collection's worth. And it's like, yeah, they picked up every rock that wasn't nailed down and now it's in their front yard. And it's like, it's yard rock now. And it, that could have that, that rock, if it stayed where it was, could have sparked somebody's imagination, but now it's in somebody's front yard, you know, and to be buried later on. So yeah, picking rocks is, I think, and rock hounding has always been something that dad's always been really good at teaching me. And I know he's taught his students. It's like, you know, you just figure out the rock that you like, as dad was saying, you know, it's, you gotta, you gotta find one that you like and then move into the lapidary part from there. Cause those two don't usually go together when, you know, rock hounds first start, they pick out things that you know that aren't going to cut, but that's how you learn. Yeah. I think that's a good point. You don't have to take it all. That's right. Sorry. You don't yes. have to take it all. Yes. Well, being a custom lapidary like I have been for a long time, I've you know I've gone out and I've rock hounded quite a little bit when I was younger, and I, I had the passion to do that. I hate to admit it, but anymore I don't get out as much as I'd like to, simply because I'm busy making cabs out of the material I have here already. Sure. And I didn't speak much of that earlier, and I'm not going to take up a lot of time on it right now anyway. But but picking good material for lapidary is is one of the most challenging parts about being a successful lapidary. I I think. I, I I put it in percentage. Um, I think half of my business, 50% of my business, is the ability to find quality lapidary material to use and unique lapidary material to use, whether that's out in the field or as it is, you have to go buy it or search for it at large shows like Tucson. And now the internet, of course, is loaded with them. But that's a that's an ongoing process with any lapidaries coming up with interesting cool rocks that 
and minerals that you can that can you you can utilize. And most of that stuff's not available out rock hounding. You know, you can go to all the rock hounding sites and pick up your standard agates and jaspers. But, you know, if you want something exotic, well, then you've got to open up your pocketbook and be able to pay for the good stuff, you know. Just What's your favorite stone right now? Oh, my gosh, Katie. God, everybody I asks, know. Everybody asks me that, you know. And I, the ones that are selling. The ones that are selling, <laughs> I guess. The ones yeah. that are on my desk that I'm looking sure. at right now, I guess, would be the ones that I'm really interested in. Uh, I can quickly answer that in one question, in one answer is dinosaur bone. It's always been dino- agatized dinosaur bone. I've, I've always had a passion for that. Nice. But, I, you know, if I get into some other rock, then I have that passion for that one, too. And my shop is absolutely jam-packed with all of this stuff, you know. I've, I bet. I've hoarded this What about material. you, Alex? <laughs> uh, my current current favorite material is probably turquoise. I, I've, I really, my business has moved into doing a lot more Southwest-inspired type of uh jewelry and i i love turquoise it's just a cool stone i mean you just it's you kind of get addicted to it it's kind of like opals that way where it's like you never can have enough and as i said earlier you know take what you can use but you know as far as turquoise is goes it's like every piece is just its own little own little thing it's always different and it's always it's always got something going on in it which i really enjoy so that's my probably my current favorite and that just happens to go right along with the work that i'm making as well so you know back when i was carving it was you know my always my favorite thing to carve in the whole wide world was good bolivian ametrine and the first bolivian ametrine was always the best my grandfather bought me two or three pieces when i was i don't know 16 17 years old and it it was still some of the best bolivian ametrine i've ever had and i've got pictures of the carvings i made out of it just gorgeous purples and yellows together. But that was always my favorite cut was ametrine as far as a carving material. Blue yeah, there's a lot going on with it. It always looks different. I guess turquoise has this, I mean, in a totally different way, turquoise has a similar variation in the way that yeah. it can look. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and turquoise goes just every color that you can imagine in the blues and the greens. And it's, you know, and just it's what, what color are you into that day, you know? So that's what I like about it. Yeah. Well, thank you, too, for joining me. I feel like we could talk for days. This is... <laughs> well, we could. Um, <laughs> this is good. Gonna have to do I'm really a podcast glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, podcast, yeah. too. It sounds good yeah. to me. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Katie, for doing this. Yeah. We do appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.